Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. The one about Christmas adverts, SEO cheat sheets, and on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Let's get on with the show. And welcome, everyone, to another recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. As always, we're here to keep you up to date with the latest tech, news, content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. My co-host has been on a mission to keep marketing simple. He's the voice of the Marketing and Finance Podcast and the host of the Roger Log video series. I give you Mr. Roger Edwards. Hello. Hi, everybody. And thank you, Pascal, as always, for that fantastic introduction you are also a man on a mission to keep digital marketing simple and demystify digital marketing you're also the host of the content marketing studio video podcast series so i give you everyone mr pascal fintoni thank you so much roger now roger this is number 11 11 fine prime number if you ask me i love a bit of symmetry um (laughs) but also one where we're going to go through a lot of content so we've got some a very special selection in film marketing we can't wait to let you know about our content creators shout outs from the individuals we've chosen we've got a fun review of this week in history I'm looking forward to Roger revealing his content spotlight as well. We've got so much to go through. And as ever, let's begin with In The News. Tesco continues to promote its innovation program, the Tesco Red Door, inviting tech startups and inventors to present their new products, ideas or emerging technologies with the potential to cause disruption in the future. Apple is planning to launch its own search engine, Roger. According to many reports, signs include the recruitment of search engineers, the growing presence of Spotlight and Siri, and pressure from the regulators targeting Google. Ah, I love this one. Netflix has launched its new global campaign across 27 markets called One Story Away. Netflix wants to celebrate the power of storytelling and how series and films make us feel closer to each other. Talking about story, IKEA is still encouraging us to get a good night's sleep with a retelling of the tortoise and the hare story as a TV advert. So this is because a lot of people have found that their sleep has been affected by COVID-19. Yeah, that's definitely me. That's definitely me. Time Kettle, a Shenzhen-based startup, has created a smartphone dongle that can translate 40 languages in real time. Called The Zero, it uses AI to detect languages and to provide translation and pronunciation guides within two seconds. Wow. Well, listen to this, Roger. Microsoft is testing the Surface Duo, a two-screen foldable phone that lets you run two apps side-by-side or make one app stretch across both. You have also a 360-degree hinge that helps you flip your phone and use it like a regular device. (laughs) Fantastic. The European Commission is to propose new rules called the Digital Services Act by the end of the year to increase the liability of Facebook, Google, Twitter and other tech rivals for content on their platforms. And finally, Texas tech company Onward Mobility is promising to bring back the iconic BlackBerry in 2021 with the release of a brand new 5G Android phone with a physical keyboard in North America and Europe. Fantastic. Blackberries. I can remember blackberries. Did you have one? Well, do you know what? It's one of those things that stick in the memory. I was working for big corporate, and I, and I just can't remember when. Uh, must have been some time in the mid-2000s. And I remember talking to this one guy who was very important as part of the deal that we were doing with this company. And he went completely 
off the grid for about three or four days and everybody was saying what's happened with this deal and and finally sort of reappeared and says sorry guys but um the reason i haven't been in touch is my blackberry stopped working and we're all sort of looking at each other saying <laughs> what the hell are you talking about blackberry we we'd never actually heard of but this was he was working for one of the f- companies that first got their staff all of their staff using blackberries and that was the first that i'd ever heard of it and Obviously, uh, a lot of my colleagues have never heard of it again. But within six months, everybody, including me, had a BlackBerry. Now, I must say, I've never had um, the, the pleasure of using uh, a BlackBerry. Um, but I, I could see people uh, trying to use it as well to uh, browse the web, you know, because from memory, you have a little kind of almost like a little curse in the middle of your keyboard. And I could see them struggling to just uh, find information and click on the links and so on. But um, it has an incredibly loyal following. And I can see this doing well, Roger. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I always struggled with the miniature tiny key. I mean, they, they all always say that we have I, iPhone thumb or Android thumb, don't we? But those BlackBerry keyboards were physical keyboards, and 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 each key was literally you know, a half a millimeter wide. You know, it was incredibly hard to actually type on that little keyboard. But everybody was there, I was hammering away at it. it. It's incredible how things have changed. Absolutely. Now, I was very pleased also to, in terms of our news gathering, to have this element of story coming in. Yes, so you had Netflix yes. and Ikea. And I love really what they both done, both brands. You know, I mean, obviously you could argue Netflix, of course they would. But then again, you know, they, you could argue they could just gone gone the simple way of we're just a publisher, we're just a portal with videos, help yourself out. But actually they, they're having a great time, you know, looking at the content and how to make good use of it. But IKEA, no, of course, they want to sell more beds and mattresses. I get it, but again, using story and actually using uh, what is the challenge of, of of the times very very smartly. Yeah, I mean, storytelling it comes up on this show lots, doesn't it, Pascal? We we all in the marketing profession love a good story, and and of course, storytelling is 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 woven through the whole Netflix thing. But you know, again, a, a lot of corporates just miss out on the power of storytelling. So anything that big brands like this can do to encourage people to tell stories is such a good thing, and, and it's now bringing me back. Uh, wasn't there a cartoon? I can't remember. It might have been a Bugs Bunny cartoon, or or a Daffy Duck, or 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 Donald Duck cartoon, which was like a replay of the tortoise and the hare. And it must have been Bugs Bunny because Bugs Bunny was that was the equivalent of the hare. Uh, but the tortoise had all these sort of gadgets built into its shell, like rocket motors and, and, <laughs> and, and, and big wheels and everything. And of course, in that particular cartoon, that the tortoise was able to travel at light speed, almost like road running, and wow, straight through. <laughs> Again, it's amazing how just talking about things like this can trigger memory. I've, I've probably not thought about that cartoon for 20-odd years, if if longer, and, and just having this conversation with you has triggered that memory, and I've been able to dredge it back up. Mm. That just proves, doesn't it, the power of stories. Yeah, because you have the uh, combination of visuals, and emotion being recalled. Yeah. I think that's yeah. very, very important. One last question, then I've got a surprise for you, Roger. Okay. So I was interested to see how you brought up the things about the regulators 
that are mm-hmm. onto the likes of Google, particularly Twitter and Facebook, saying, well, you may be content uh, publishers, we're going to be liable now for the content that you have around misinformation as well as obviously things um, that are able to hurt someone or, or that kind of things. But then you've got Apple. And I'm wondering, is Apple saying the signs here thinking maybe we should move away from our partnership with Google and the others and go our own way? Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? This, I mean, my initial reaction when I saw that was, why would you bother trying to come up with your own search engine to challenge Google, which is quite honestly embedded within the entire fabric of the internet and society as a whole? But again, there's so much going on underneath the surface within these mega corporations. You know, Facebook constantly being accused of f- fake news and abusing people's data and all of that sort of thing so i I can see the attraction in in creating your own ecosystem and being totally responsible and accountable for that ecosystem as opposed to relying upon another organization which could actually be a little bit dodgy under the surface i'm not saying that any of them are but you know the the implication is there in what we read about so i can see why apple might want to encapsulate themselves and, and keep themselves separate no no i would agree with that roger now you may remember of course you will sorry roger yeah. that a few weeks ago we mentioned Brewdog. Yes. And how they went ahead following a little exchange with Ricky Gervais on Twitter to pro- to supply some beers where the proceeds and sales revenue would go to in a two dogs charity. Yep. I went ahead. Um, it was almost a marketing experiment, but also because I, I just love dogs. And I received my supply of brew dog uh, beers yesterday. Okay. And I'm going to show you, Roger, what you get is a can of beer, but you also get to learn about those dogs who are <laughs> staying in those um, in those shelters looking oh. for a new mum and dad. And um, so it is in obviously the, uh, the well-known um, brew dog beer, but also all you get is those little <laughs> kind of, you know, and I'm almost tempted not to drink the beer. I'm just going to, it feels bad, you know, but uh, so there's a pack of 12. So I've got 12 dogs now in my house and um, it feels great. And what a way again, as we, we mentioned, to just jump on the PRI day and, and, and do something for good. So are you actually tempted to adopt any of those dogs? That's the great question. Well, since you're asking the question, Dennis and I decided <laughs> that we need a dog. So we've had dogs in most of our lives. And um, our two dogs passed away uh, because of old age. And um, we feel that the time is, is right now for us to have a dog. But that means that we need to uh, move house again. <laughs> so move house before dog. That's yes, probably a good so thing. So we need a garden and so on and so forth. <laughs> but yes, uh, temptation is there, Roger. Excellent. So, shall we move on to the next segment and let's talk about our content spotlights. So, this is our content spotlights, the moment where every week Roger and I surprise each other with a selected content, podcast, video, what else? So, Roger, surprise me. What have you got for us this week? Pascal, do you realise that it's less than four months till Christmas? I don't now, want to think about it, Roger. <laughs> now, the thing is, th- th- this is this is always a bone of contention with me. Now, I have to say, I'm not going to the shops that often at the moment. Uh, but I was up at the uh, New Craig Hall shopping centre earlier this week. And lo and behold, we're a few days into September. And of course, 
one of the shops has got all its Christmas decorations up and all of its Christmas products in the window and on the displays. And my immediate reaction was, oh, for the love of everything that's holy, why <laughs> are you starting to go on about Christmas four months before Christmas? And, and let's face it, this year... To me, everything's gone wrong. We've had COVID. We've had all the disasters that the world can throw at us. It it, it feels to me as if this, this, this year doesn't deserve Christmas. So this article that I found in Marketing Week by one of my favourite authors, Mark Ritson, is titled Read the Nation's Mood Before You Commit to Your Christmas Campaign. And it's a fascinating read because it really does highlight the fact that at this moment, four months away from Christmas, we just don't know what the nation's mood is going to be like in December. You know, we've just had the announcement from the government, both in England and also on this occasion, Scotland has followed England, to limit the number of people who can gather together in one place again. So, so we're not going back into full lockdown, but we are going into a certain amount of lockdown. And that might have an effect on how people can meet at, at Christmas. You know, people might not be able to get together as a family. And yet, across the entire marketing spectrum, no doubt, productions are underway to put together perhaps the John Lewis you know, the famous John Lewis Christmas advert that everybody waits for. You know, what's it going to be this time? A little boy sitting on the moon or a little boy sitting in the forest or a little girl on some incredible adventure and tied into that Christmas theme. You know, everybody has this powerful Christmas message. But for a lot of us, you know, Christmas might be an unhappy time this year because unfortunately COVID might have taken a loved one away from us or somebody might have lost their job they might not have the spending power to go out and buy presents for their family on the other side of the coin you know people haven't lost loved ones people's jobs haven't been affected they may well go and spend money as they normally would and in fact the article says that something like about 70 percent of people are saying they'll just carry on as normal but the, the the cautionary tale within mark's article is the mood of the nation in, indeed the mood of the world is different this year so it might not be appropriate for you whether you're doing the great big john lewis almost like movie style production advert even down to local businesses advertising in their shop windows the mood of the nation is different and as marketers you need to capture that mood and reflect it back in your communications. And it's really going to be very difficult because that means you're going to have to do some research. It means you're going to have to try and maybe change the way that you communicate. And it's going to be hard because probably unlike any time in history, we're going through a, a, a just a, a unique, you know, unprecedented time and how do you make your communications reflect what we're going through? So what he's saying is, by all means, continue to do your communications around Christmas, because for at least half of the population, they're still going to be looking forward to it. But be mindful of the other part of the population who might not 
be as happy about Christmas as they might have been in the past. So it's a massive, massive challenge to all of us as marketing communicators as Christmas approaches. And, and it's well worth reading Mark's article just, just to maybe st- step back and have a really good think about what you're doing. And, you know, I can see um, this article should be circulated around teams and, and yeah. d- different business units and so on. I think you're absolutely right. I think Mark's um, contribution is timely. It's also very wise. And my suggestion to you would be, Roger, therefore, that now we're going to see those who have true communication skills. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, that sadly, when it comes to marketing in particular and, uh, and with regard to uh, online, you now have almost those who are the technicians Mm-hmm. of of the web and i wouldn't call them necessarily communicators but they, they know how to play the game and they kind of have they, they have sorted out a formula that kind of works for them and then you've got those who are truly marketers and they're going to approach this from a very humanistic point of view and yeah, i think there's absolutely. going to be a clear divide i suggest to you that also what would be uh, i think very healthy and may actually play well to to many brands is maybe they should get in touch right now via their email marketing campaign and say to their audience you you decide do you want to mute us for a while and not get the christmas specials and so on because you just don't feel like it or you're happy for us to be in touch with you and again just make make that approach i mean you talk about market research of course you need to do some but i think that could be gone begin with this idea of content as customer service so you know, instead of um, you know rubbing your hands thinking, well, look, we've got a database of X thousand people and start to already pr- predict the conversion rate and start to get excited about what you might achieve or not achieve, maybe you step back and go, shall we ask first if they really want to hear from us? Um, back to your point, you know, there could have been things happening or about to happen that frankly would make it wholly inappropriate for us to try and, and push whatever, whatever we have in mind. Uh, and I think um, I can see also if you take, you know, the examples of the stories like we talked about IKEA, Brewdog, and so on, I can see more and more partnership working between brands and also that, that link with um, with uh, charitable endeavors. I think that would work well. Nice one, think, Roger. And I think as well, you know, I, I, I use the John Lewis advert as an example. I mean, it's an expected spectacle, I guess, now every year, isn't it, that we're going to look forward to the John Lewis advert and and it from a production point of view it's it's almost like a mini movie rather than an advert and i do sometimes think that they lose the fact that it is an advert for a store now you know and an advert should create interest it should create anticipation and it should generate a call to action and i think a lot of the time these things have almost gone beyond advertising and that and it has become john lewis's christmas movie and as good as it is i think that sometimes it goes beyond being an advertisement and therefore you actually question what is it actually for other than a piece of entertainment and as a marketer i think you know you should always have that reason to get people to visit you, to get people to engage with you, to get people to buy from you. And if you get to that stage where you are creating something which doesn't do any of those things, then you've effectively moved away from your job as a marketer. I mean, that might not be a bad thing. You may just have become a broadcaster or a media company. But I do sometimes think that this flurry of activity around Christmas sometimes moves away from the actual idea of promotion. 
No, no, that's, that's very, very fair. I think it, sometimes it felt almost like um, the one-upmanship between brands. Who's going to yes. have the better um, TV adverts? Who's going to get the awards at the uh, Golden Lions at Cannes? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's it. Yeah. So, uh, Roger, this week I've got what I'm going to call an online resource for you. Okay. Although you could argue it is a long-form article, but it has so many different parts and it goes to so much depth that I think it qualifies more as an online resource short of actually an online course. Now, the creator of that content is a gentleman called David Mim, and you can find him on davidmim.com, and he has created what is called the ACO Cheat Sheet for Small Business Owners, a plan of attack for businesses without an in-house marketer. So that's kind of uh, his proposition. And the reason why I chose it is because there were some lessons in there uh, for us to consider, Roger. So number one, this article was uh, presented to me in the moz.com newsletter. So David Mim is not um, obviously one of my contacts. Uh, I don't know him, but I've been a regular uh, follower, loyal follower of moz.com for oh, forever, I would imagine. My go-to authority for all things SEO and online online brand building. So number one, moz.com doesn't mind promoting others' content in their newsletter which I think is very, very telling, and indeed promote content that you could argue competes directly with their core offering because Moz has a SEO guide for you know small businesses too. But I think, again, it's back to this idea of building a community and actually understanding that on occasion, the way in which we present something may not be quite right for you. You know, the tone of voice, the style, whatever it might be, try this instead. So that's number one. Number two, uh, I would say David has done an incredible amount of work on this. I mean, he goes into a lot of depth um, and he has three key parts. One, which is keys to SEO. So understanding the, the kind of the, um, the essentials of SEO. Then he offers an SEO roadmap, almost using the, the map of an underground, you know, like we have in London and in the US. And then he offers you an, a full SEO timetable. So it actually breaks down how you could organize your week and your month around SEO, splitting, as you know, on-site and off-site uh, occupations. So Really, really quite good. With the keys to SEO, he makes a very valid point that be very careful that, you know, this this business of looking for keywords, if you look for keywords to essentially based on what you call what you do, you'd be, miss, you'd be missing the point that your customers may be using very different language, which has been the challenge from the get-go, you know, uh, in, with, with that. The, the roadmap and the timetables are, are, are superb. I mean, so much details. I would say that it's for someone that wants to learn how to do it. You know, this is not a snackable bit of content. It goes into a lot of depth, and I think you should be credited for that. But the other reason I wanted to bring it up to you, Roger, is that um, with regard to my occupation and, and what I've been doing in my career, I've been essentially involved with SEO since 2003, and I've been teaching SEO since 2006. And here we are in 2020, still having to explain what SEO is. And my reaction, not taking away actually the wonderful work that David has done, but my reaction is, is it time for SEO to get a new PR manager? Because yes. it ain't working, Roger. I'm sorry to say, but if in 2020, we're still having to explain the basics, we should not blame the marketers and business managers. We should blame the... Um, the entity that is SEO, the language of the industry, and is it time for the whole of the SEO 
kind of um, ecosystem to get a complete makeover and change its language, change its approach, and change the way it addresses its audience. Do you know, this is so true. I actually interviewed somebody for my own podcast, Marketing and Finance podcast, a month or so ago, who is an SEO expert. And when I was listening to him, he was an absolute expert, and he was very good at explaining what SEO was and how it worked and all this. But of course, he was using a lot of jargon, a lot of gobbledygook. <laughs> and I, I, I did sit there and think, you know, you, you know how obsessed I am with keeping things simple and, and eliminating that sort of language. And I was sitting here thinking, you know, anybody listening to this isn't going to understand a word that you're saying, even though you're explaining it well, you're explaining it in terminology that people who don't know about it will, will not understand. And you're absolutely right, Pascal. SEO is almost like a black art, isn't it? It's it's something that you get taught in some secret <laughs> SEO training camp behind a great big uh, six-foot-high wall with machine gun nests and all of that sort of thing. And, and you hear all these things like backlinks and long-tail keywords. And, and it is very, very confusing. When you actually boil down to exactly what it is, I think the actual concepts and the actual practice of it is actually qu quite easy to get. It, it's just one of those areas that has just become absolutely bloated with techno babble. And, and if this article helps people to, uh, to fight their way through that techno babble, then all the better. And also, hopefully as well, what it will do is it will give people the confidence to, to work on these things themselves rather than maybe get bamboozled by companies who play upon the fact that it's a black art and 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 you know there's some you hear about some pretty woeful practices going on mm. in SEO don't you and and a lot of companies get stung and and end up getting blocked by Google because they break all of these protocols that nobody knows about so this this is a great piece of content to allow people to cut through that jargon and actually see it for what it is which is actually really quite easy practices to to implement it is. I mean, for people who know about it, but also if you don't know, it's incredibly logical. It's very systematic, in fact. And at the heart of it, it it's all based on the understanding of your customers and how much you want to provide a good service online and, and that kind of things. And I think also where people sometimes get a little lost and confused is there's a difference between being, let's say, the in-house marketer and yeah. using whatever time budget you've got to do a bit of SEO, a bit of social media and so on, but do the essentials and then being a SEO expert where it is your full-time function and it is maybe your career or, or your business. So it's a bit like, forgive me, uh, Roger, I'm not a chef, but I can cook, right? Yes. So, so that's almost a difference, which is there is a version of SEO which is for the five-star Michelin chefs and let them get on with it, and, and it's great for them. But there's also a version where you can provide a great um, feast for your friends and have a wonderful time. And I think where the SEO industry has not done a good enough job is to actually create those degrees of like of, of mm. complexity mm. and almost say to somebody, oh, by the way, if you are a one-man band, this is your version of SEO. 
if there's 10 of you, this is what you do. If there's if you're a larger company and almost kind of have different versions or different levels of activities based on actually your sales and marketing plan. And I think that's where there's a disconnect. So it feels as though there's only one version of SEO, which is the one the experts talk about. Hence, these things about the long, long tails and, and that kind of things. And you're right, you know, it is probably by far compared to social media, email marketing, the others, the one that has adopted the most acronyms, jargons, and so on. And and that's why my position is people like David and many others continue to do your good work. But I wonder whether the industry as a whole needs a new PR manager. Yeah, absolutely. I love that analogy, Pascal, with the five-star Michelin restaurant. I mean, we all like to eat out in a Michelin restaurant from time to time, but for most of us, the cafe on the corner is absolutely (laughs) the best thing that we want. Superb. Right, Roger. Let's move on to marketing tech and apps. So, Roger, what have you brought from your toolkit or memory bank? Okay, Pascal, I've got an admission. I like to have something to keep me on track, like a to-do list, but I am an absolute nightmare when it comes to using to-do lists. So I sort of I sort of pop in and out of using things like to-do list apps and to-do list platforms. And I'm going through one of those phases at the moment where I think as business picks up after after COVID, as the lockdown eases, more more inquiries are coming through and I suddenly found myself uh, dropping the ball a bit. So I've gone back to looking at these sort of to-do list productivity type apps. And I thought I would highlight two of them for you today. First one is one that I've been using on and off for probably about five or six years, and it's called Todoist. Now that's all one word, Todoist. And it's probably, to use your analogy, it's probably the three-star Michelin version <laughs> of, of the to-do list app. Not only can you create the tasks that you've got to do and put deadlines on them and, and synchronize them with calendars and all of that sort of thing, you can also integrate them with your team. You can integrate them with your business. You, but what I actually really like about Todoist is that you can create tasks aligned to goals now it's one of my uh, it's another of my marketing bugbears that quite a lot of us as marketers tend not to have goals and goals are very important as part of overall strategy i mean you know my philosophy marketing isn't just about communications it's also about creating an offer having a series of goals and then building your marketing communications activity around it and what i do like about to do ist is the ability to align the tasks that you are performing with specific goals and those goals can be you know it can be anything it can just be a project goal it could be a revenue goal number of customers whatever it might be but if you are goal orientated then Todoist is a great app for you from a a, a to-do list point of view but then I found on my phone, do you know how sometimes when you um, when you go into your phone and it tells you you've got a number of updates for apps, <laughs> and sometimes you can go in after a few days and find that about 35 of your apps need updating? Well, I used to use something which was called Wonderlist. Wonder, spelt with a U, Wonderlist. And what I liked about Wonderlist was that it was 
almost like the complete opposite of Todoist. It was literally just a to-do list, and you could set it to synchronize with your diary and uh, priorities, and that's pretty much it. And when I was updating the phone, it told me that Wonderlist has been taken over by Microsoft, and they've they've, they've just renamed it. It's just called Microsoft To Do, and effectively it's the same as Wonderlist. They've just put a Microsoft um, sort of banner and uh, and logo and, and colour scheme all over it, branding. Uh, and it's remarkably, remarkably simple. As I say, it doesn't have all of that extra functionality and all of that sort of thing. And, I, and it, did, it did get me thinking, I love the simplicity of Wonderlist, a bleak Microsoft to-do. And, and I think probably... At the stage I'm at at the moment, as business starts to pick up, I'm probably going to veer towards the simpler one rather than the one with more functionality. Because actually, all I need is something to just keep me on track and to give me a nudge from time to time when a deadline is approaching. I probably don't need all of that extra functionality. But I thought I'd tell you about both of those because undoubtedly, in the same way as we were talking about SEO, some people will want the three-star Michelin approach and others will want the cafe on the corner. At the moment, my cafe on the corner version of to-do list is Microsoft to-do. Thank you very much. I didn't know about those two apps, so thanks very much for bringing them to us and to our viewers and listeners. So today, Roger, it's all about Google Maps for me. Okay. Uh, now, I don't know about you, but I have no memory of how I manage life and traveling without Google Maps. <laughs> it's uh, really quite something uh, how now, if I go anywhere, Google Maps would be my traveling companion. But Google Maps has also uh, business facets. The most famous one, I would argue, is Google My Business, which is where you go in and fill essentially an online form to become listed and have your little red pin. But before I come on to that one, I wanted to remind you and our viewers and listeners about Google My Maps. So Mm -hmm. Google My Maps is a subset of Google Maps, which allows you, using your Google account, a free product, allows you to create some maps that then you can share on. Mm. And those really are using the same kind of uh, visuals and same look and feel and so on, but you have your own unique pins. So now, why would you want to create maps using Google Maps and share them on? Well, there's two things. Firstly, you could use them for sales and marketing. So to give you an example, I was recently helping a customer make sense of their market to make sense of their target audience. Now, on Google My Maps, what you can do is search for your prospects and your customers, and then the map will appear. So if you can, in this case, he was looking for electrical contractors because you had a software that could obviously help them run the business more successfully. And within moments, we had a map with pins of electrical contractors. Then you can change the pins to, depending on the size of the business, depending on the location. But there's something really powerful about the visualization of where your customers are as opposed to, forgive me, Roger, a Excel spreadsheet or any form <laughs> yeah. of documentation with a long list of names and postcodes. And what was interesting is that then he had a vision that his customers would be much further away from him. He had this vision of having to think more nationwide, realizing that within a 10-mile radius, he had plenty to go after. So he also informed his business strategy. So Google My Maps could be used for to inform yourselves and almost to continue as customer service after that. You could also use it for content marketing. So you 
we now know because you've uh, confessed to that fact many times that you're very fond of coffee roger and so what um you could do moving forward is create a map with with spots your best go-to coffee shops and venues for content creation to be uh, you know to have uh, imagination and so on and you could share that as part of a blog post or as part of a rog vlog um you know blog post in terms of these are my go-to coffee shops now this is obviously uh, a fun example but if you are example in the business of public speaking you could make a map with your top recommended venues mm. that maybe event organizers could use and share that as part of your content marketing so there's both if like internal use for so as a marketer market research there's also external use for content marketing Google My Maps, I highly recommend it. It's it's really quite powerful. Quickly about Google My Business, probably the most underrated and underuse kind of um, marketing tool for small businesses. It's not just for shops and restaurants, Roger. It's for everybody. Even if you're working from home, you can still kind of be listed. Uh, you just have an area of activity as opposed to an address. But the plans for Google, let's be clear, Roger, is for Google maps to become a social network they announced this about two years ago and they seem to be taking their time probably because it's, it's obviously quite complex but they are putting features that leads me to think that they still want to do that so number one they want you to post articles and updates on your google my business account which gives you of course that listing on google maps why they didn't call it the same is uh, unfortunate they allow you to also have one-to-one -one messages um, with your prospects and customers people can leave reviews as you know you can upload photos you can upload videos you can answer questions as well so there's a whole kind of uh, preparation towards essentially this becoming a social network but also against your business name or your name as an individual you're guaranteed number one position bear in mind the conversation we had a moment ago about seo so i suppose my kind of um request would be for people to go back to their google my business entry perhaps neglected for the last few months and few years and go through the different fields and the different features and make sure that it's fully completed and if you are a blogger if you are a podcaster and if you are a youtuber just upload a copy of what you've done on your google my business account you're not going to get a lot of traffic but that prepares you for the habit of having an additional platform when it becomes a fully fledged social media platform Fantastic. Yeah, I, I, I am aware of Google My Business and sometimes it sends you an email to remind you, doesn't it? Uh, but it's one of those things that I have neglected myself and I admit that. So it's a timely reminder for me to get my backside in there and make sure that everything's up to date. Excellent. Well, talking of timely reminder, let's move on to our next segment, This Week in History. In 1580, English seaman Francis Drake returns to Plymouth almost three years after setting out from England, becoming the first British navigator to sail the earth. Wow. Well, in 1928, Sir Alexander Fleming makes a discovery when noticing that a mould had killed many uncovered bacteria. One year later, Fleming called this mould byproduct penicillin. In 1960, for the first time in US history, a debate between two presidential candidates was shown on television. Less than two months later, John F. Kennedy is elected, winning 49.7% of the popular vote. 
1973, the supersonic aircraft Concorde sets a new speed record, flying from Washington DC to Paris in 3 hours and 32 minutes, an average speed of 954 miles per hour. Oh my goodness, Concorde. In 1974, the BBC launches CFAX, the first teletext facility in the world, enabling the viewer to see facts. The service was ended after 38 years of broadcasting on the 23rd of October 2012, in line with the digital switchover. In 1979, CompuServe launches the first online information service called Micronet. By the mid-80s, CompuServe was the largest consumer information service in the world, but lost its dominance in the 90s to AOL, amongst others. In 1983, Microsoft releases Microsoft Word 1.0, the first software to make extensive use of a computer mouse. A free demo was offered in copies of PC World magazine, making it the first floppy disk to ever be included with that magazine. Oh, Roger, listen to this. In 1994, Friends, an American television sitcom created by Debbie Crane and Malta Kaufman, airs on NBC. It will last 10 seasons. That's 236 episodes, with the last one entitled, well, The Last One. The Last One. And in 2010, The Social Network, directed by David Fincher and starring Jesse Eisenberg, Andrew Garfield and Justin Timberlake premieres at the New York Film Festival. Wow, what a film that was at the time. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, uh, pulling back the curtain on how Facebook came about. College kids, it's incredible. Well, most of the platforms are nowadays, you know. So I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to go back to Friends. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So uh, two things. We now can reveal to our viewers and listeners, although many would have spotted, that the way in which we shape and craft our titles is inspired by the Friends TV series, by saying the indeed. one. You know, and... Um, the, interestingly, the only two episodes that didn't use this formula for Friends was the first one called Pilot, and then the last one called The Last One. But yeah, the one with or the one where uh, has been obviously the formula for the Friends titles. You, you and I, when we were crafting the, um, the the series, thought we should do that too. Yeah, I mean, I love I love Friends. I love Friends. That clapping at the beginning of the, of the uh, title sequence and the song was so catchy. I. I I can't believe it lasted for 10 years. It, those 10 years just went by in a flash of speed. But it, it was a, it was a, some, somebody recently showed me a, an app. I can't remember what it's called. I'd have to look it up, which actually shows the viewing figures for all sorts of TV series throughout history. And it's got everything in there from Walking Dead, Game of Thrones, and obviously things like Friends and Frasier and stuff like that. And, the line for Friends, the viewing figures, is almost a straight line throughout the entire 10 years. Total consistency. Whereas other things like uh, Game of Thrones, for example, you know, up and down and then plummeting over a cliff in the dodgy um, eighth <laughs> series. But Friends had that consistency of acting, of comedy and of writing that they managed to sustain throughout the entire 10 series and that's a massive massive it is. achievement and to this day the most rewatched and replayed series for different generation you know uh, parents watch with their children now and so on still the box set does very well at christmas and so on and so forth so it's incredible but uh, i must confess roger i didn't know that cfax meant 
see facts you know no. so thank you for that because um, i'm gonna go to bed less stupid tonight yeah and, and again we used to you know, I, i'd forgotten about it but of course you used to go in in there to get your information on tv programs check the listings you know even check share prices i think you could even do things like that on cfax but pascal i need to talk to you about concord right i thought you might there is a concord at east fortune air museum which is literally about um, five miles down the road from me so it's, it's somewhere that i go regularly and they've got one of the the concords there in a hangar and it is such a beautiful piece of machinery i mean the fact that it was built in the 1960s is it, it's just it, it just staggering it beggars belief that that we built something so amazing and so beautiful and capable of such speed but my biggest regret is that i never got the chance to fly in it and interestingly enough at east fortune air museum they also have a a danair comet 4c um i won't be able to remember the registration number of it without looking it up it's something like gbdix i think it is now i know that I actually flew in that particular comet because my father was a bit of a plane geek like me. And every time we went on holiday, he used to write down the registration number of the aircraft. And we flew to Menorca in the Balearic Islands in about 1979 on GBDIX. So every time I go to East Fortune Air Museum, I can look at the Concorde and I can look at the Danair Comet and say, I flew in the Danair Comet, but I will never be able to fly in the Concorde. And it's a bit of a source of regret for me. My wife and I had the opportunity, around about 1982, they were doing some special offers on Concorde trips, and it was too flying to New York on the Concorde and coming back on a jumbo jet. So, And it was about 1,500 quid each, which at the time in terms of Concorde fares, was an absolute bargain because I think the the actual full fare on Concorde was something like ten to fifteen thousand pounds, and I still didn't pe- go for it. I mean, fifteen you know fifteen hundred quid was a lot of money, but in in terms of Concorde, it wasn't. And I really think back so many times, thinking for goodness' sake, it went out of service literally two or three years later, and you l- missed your opportunity. And I, I really regret not springing for that 1,500 quid to travel in Concorde. Yes, I know. I mean, I, I saw the Concorde take off twice, I think, from Paris and then once in the air at, a, at an air show. And it's quite an exceptional experience, you know, I have to say. Um, I mean, I'd love to talk to you about Francis Drake because I think that's quite an achievement and, and really set, you know, things whether we think JFK was the first personal branding, you know, uh, kind of <laughs> component and, and master of uh, of uh, personal image because, you know, we know that he was elected because he played to the television, which was essentially the, the medium uh, of the time. But time is against us, sadly, Roger. So, Let's move on to our content creators' shout-outs. So, Roger, who is your creator this week? 
Okay, Pascal, this is a podcast. This is a podcast, and it's called the Keep It Podcast. The the shout-outs for the creators are Ira Madison, Louis Vertel, and Ada Osman. Now, funnily enough, it was you who recommended that I listen to David Tennant's podcast. Um, and by the way, the episode that David Tennant did with George Takei, who oh, played yes. Mr. Sulu in, uh, in Star Trek, possibly one of the best podcast episodes I've ever listened to. And George Takei, hadn't real, I hadn't realised how much depth there was to this gentleman and his history. And he's just such an remarkable human being with a really silky voice, and I could listen to him all afternoon. But he, that's not actually the shout-out. That's not actually the shout-out. In that episode, David Tennant pointed to this other podcast the keep it podcast and i like the sound of it so i, I went and had a look and, and, I, and i almost like fell into a rabbit hole rabbit <laughs> hole and ended up listening to this podcast pretty much all afternoon it's a little bit like what we do right. except imagine that they just do the film marketing section for the whole podcast mm. um and it's it's not just films they talk about tv they talk about pop culture and then they, but they interweave it into politics and into current affairs and things like that. And it 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 reminds me of you and I just riffing in the in the two geeks in a marketing podcast. And and they've they've created this illusion that they genuinely are like we envisage, sat in a coffee shop or a pub, drinking coffee or drinking wine, and just chatting about popular culture films and tv and the, and they seem to go round and about the houses they go off on on tangents it doesn't feel as if it's scripted at all but i actually suspect that it's incredibly tightly scripted because they really do draw out all the uh, all the information about the particular film they're talking about or the tv show or whatever it is but they just seem to go off in so many different directions, but always manage to come back. It's it's remarkable. It's addictive. And because it seems like where this show might be after another 30 or 40 episodes in terms of uh, content, uh, you just have to ha go and have a listen to it. So the Keep It podcast. Oh, Roger, what am I going to do? I've got so many podcasts on, <laughs> on my Stitcher app now. I think more time in the day, but that sounds uh, outstanding. Well, strangely, Roger, because um, we don't talk to each other. I know we surprise each other with our content spotlight and our creator's shout-out. I've chosen a podcast too. Mm. Now, the host and producer is a gentleman called Bob Gentle. And Bob runs an agency called Amplify, and he has the Digital Marketing Entrepreneur Show uh, as a podcast. But the reason why I wanted to celebrate his work is because I'm going to say to you that Bob has mastered the art of the conversation, mm. interestingly enough. Now, what I do I mean by that is that when you have the pleasure to be a guest with Bob, Within moments, it puts you really at ease and you feel like literally you're having a chat with a coffee, as you mentioned a moment ago. And I must confess that when I had a, when I was a guest and where I'm perhaps more familiar with uh, structures and segment and script, with, with um, Bobby was very, very different. And what he said to me in the beginning, don't worry, I will find the story and I will find the hooks. So, you know, ultimately is the host and I kind of was guided by him so we had uh, a great chat and I left her with thinking wow how is he going to make sense of that 
and it did. I mean, that's really quite quite impressive. So not only does it produce the, the podcast episode, as you would expect, um, Roger, with the title, the visuals, and so on, but this is what, what he does, which I thought was so clever. He will then re revisit podcast and have a running commentary about how he's been thinking about it and what this now means to him. So certainly I found myself to be present in two podcasts, not just the one when I was talking to him, but one that was produced maybe two, three months later where he's reflecting on our conversation. And I thought that was so clever, Roger. I've not seen anyone do that. And he can bring more than one episode where he's kind of giving you almost like an account of, of his thinking. Now, as you would expect, then this gets repurposed into the written form and so on. The other thing that he does, just very, very quickly, he has a blog, a series as well. But what he will do, he will have a video as well as a transcription, which tends to be obviously improved in terms of the editing. And I must ask him, I can't tell whether the video is a video version of the text or the text came after the video. The reason for that, Roger, is that when you watch the video and he's addressing you, he's addressing the lens of the camera, again, back to this idea of mastering the outer conversation, you feel like he's addressing you and you feel like you're in the same room, which I think is an amazing achievement. Yeah, I've been on Bob's podcast Have as you? well. Right. Yeah. And I, I've, uh, funnily enough, during lockdown, early in lockdown, I just put out a, uh, a, a request on LinkedIn. Say, if anybody wants to have a coffee or a chat, just ask and we'll just have a chat. You know, I'm not, it's not consultancy. It's not a, a way to, to make money. I just, I'm happy to talk. And, and Bob reached out and, uh, and we had a coffee and it was such an enlightening conversation. He's got a remarkable ability to calm the situation and to be reflective and realistic and yeah that that half hour i spent with bob early in lockdown was 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 very very open in terms of uh, getting me thinking about quite a lot of things so absolutely great shout out there pascal oh thank you so much well we've hinted at it uh, long enough let's move on to film marketing Right, Roger. So this week we chose a film for actually a rather sad reason. We, yesterday, at the time of recording this, had to say our last farewell to actress Diana Rigg. Yeah, Diana Rigg. What a tour de force actress she was. Uh, most recently, she played um, Elena Turrell in uh, Game of Thrones. Uh, very well known for being one of the original Avengers, playing alongside Patrick McNee in the in the sixties, but probably most well known for her role as Teresa or Tracy in the George Lazenby James Bond film on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Now it was the sixth James Bond film, and do you know, Pascal, I think personally. It's probably my favourite James Bond film of the whole lot. It gets, it has its critics. A lot of people didn't like George Lazenby. They, I mean, he was a he was a model, wasn't he, rather than an actor, so that he gets criticised for that. But the movie itself, in terms of 
plotting, in terms of cinematography, in terms of the action, in terms of the if the 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 villain. You know, it was the it was the, Telly Savalas was the villain. He played Ernst Stavro Blofeld, but it was probably the best interpretation of Blofeld throughout the entire history of the film of the films and 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 he actually got quite action-packed as well he was taking part in the skiing sequences and things like that it, it was just the best all-round james bond film for me and therefore it's probably the james bond film that i've watched the most and in fact we me and my wife watched all 25 james bond films during lockdown and even though we've recently watched it as a result of hearing this sad news about um, about Tra- Tracy's death, about Diana Rigg's death, I feel like I need to go and watch it again. I, I would agree, and uh, once we and I agreed that that would be our selection, I couldn't resist. But Ashley went back to listen to the music score by John mm-hmm. Barry. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think you're right. You know, Diana Rigg was an accomplished actress for both stage, small screen, and the uh, the large screen. And I think actually she provided. I would argue, if you want, you don't mind me using the term, one of the best Bond girls yes. know, on screen. Um, I think perhaps began the trend of strong female characters, but that mm. perhaps you didn't have as much, you know, with the previous five. But um, you're right. What, what a film! And 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 from a film marketing uh, perspective, the the lesson that you know we can all take is this idea of a movie that was restarting the franchise by being actually very cognizant of the times that they yeah. were living. So this movie was released in 69, so you know, a year away from, from the 70s. And what is interesting is you're right, you know, the critics were very, very split. Uh, and I think unfairly so attacking George Lazenby. Uh, I will confess, um, Roger, I don't have an issue with the acting whatsoever. I, mm. I don't see what others see, but you know that's the, that's what film is all about. Um, but in terms of uh, the reaction to the film, the audience and the fans um, concur with your views. But there was uh, at the time, you know, a, a film critic that had been working for some time now for the Evening Standard, who said, you know, I'm going to read that to you. Finally, Bond is now all set for the 70s. Mm, and mm. I think one of the reasons perhaps the critics didn't like it is because actually they were changing the tone, they were changing the look, they did away with the gadgets to a point. Yep. They had a Bond that was actually perhaps more uh, grounded, shall we say, that had, you know, to a point uh, more respect for others and, and so on and so forth. And it was just, uh, you're right, you know, so well crafted. I know that the director, who had been actually a second unit director for some time, he did something very smart, which again, which is a lesson around film marketing. He pushed the production team very hard to make sure that the film would look great on TV as well as on the big screen. Yeah. So it's almost like what you and I are always worried about, which is, is it going to look great on YouTube, but also on, on, on Facebook? So planning for you know the full cinematoscope, cinematoscope version, but mm. also for potentially, I'm not sure what TV sets were like in the 70s, but I'm sure they're not you know, <laughs> what, what we have now. So there's a lot of thinking around moving with the times, which means that what happens as a result of that, sometimes your peers will criticize you because actually you're showing them up more than anything else, but your audience will, will be with you. Yeah, and and so many memorable things. I mean, it's a geek's paradise, this film. 
I, I think I'm right in saying that it's the only Bond film to have an instrumental theme tune. Um, and it was also a very early synthesizer theme tune as well. It's very powerful, but obviously no, there's no lyrics, there's no singing, no famous singer like Shirley Bassey or, or Sheena Easton. It was just an instrumental intro, but a powerful Very intro, good one, you're right, Roger. You know, yeah. you know and... Uh, incredible ski sequences the the cinematography in the alps you know i'd read that an, an article that there's a scene where they do an avalanche and they actually set the avalanche off themselves using explosives and it was all controlled obviously uh, but they filmed it from so many different angles that they that that is such a spectacular sequence um there's the 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 Blofeld's headquarters on the top of a mountain, I like a, a, it was, is actually a real place, Piz Gloria in the Swiss Alps. Um, it, it was a real place. I think it was also later on the inspiration for something in Pixar's The Incredibles, their HQ, sat on top of the mountain. The aforementioned Telly Savalas playing Blofeld. Um, that's that's probably the the only the only downside of the movie is that he pretended that he didn't know who Bond was when in fact they had met in the previous film face to face so he should have recognised him but hey maybe that's that little uh, nod to the fact that it was a different actor mm. and then the the breaking of the fourth wall uh, at the beginning of the movie at the end of the pre-credit sequence when he, uh, Lazenby turns to the camera having just lost Diana Rigg um she drives away and leaves him rather than falls into his arms like you would have expected her to do. And he just looks at the camera and says something like, well, that never happened to the other fella. <laughs> and, and yes, it is cheesy and, and a little bit. And I, I think there was a lot of criticism for that. But it was perfect way to sort of move on from Sean Connery. And I I would love, and I know there are all sorts of reasons why uh, Lazenby never did a second film, um, it, the fact that he wasn't an actor being one of them and on all sorts of problems on set that you read about but I would just have liked to have seen a second Lazenby Bond film uh, I, I agree I mean like you know it's probably one that that one and Cousin Royale which interestingly have a link because they are um, it's said that you know they are the two most uh, faithful adaptation of the novel you know the um on the Majesty's Secret Service and Cousin Royale with Daniel Craig. And, and for me then, you know, as I'm listening to you, it just goes back to the storytellers had a vision, a vision that was slightly ahead of the, the you know, kind of accepted current practices. But when we talk about building a brand and, you know, using visual stimuli uh, for, for one, Roger, it isn't about reproducing what's already out there. And if... I would imagine the producers had a good gut feel that, you know, the 70s was approaching. You know, we were way past the Cold War. There was something that's happening in the, in the 70s. And they had to kind of uh, capture, you know, really the zeitgeist of and making sure that this movie would, would, would not age as much as, for example, some of the early Sean Connery movies. I mean, I've watched them myself. And you've got to hang in there and go, wow, that was back, that was back in the days. This this movie, you know, you can watch it nowadays and not feel that it's just as as dated. Um, I want to read a couple of things to you, Roger, because for me, 
the confirmation that you know we're not kind of um, losing the plot here when it comes to literally <laughs> appraising this film and learning film marketing is that others seem to kind of concur. So to begin with, in 2012, the official 007 magazine, I'm not sure whether you get a copy, I didn't know it ex existed, but <laughs> uh, I did a survey of, of the fan base and say, okay, uh, off we go, please vote your favorite you know, James Bond movie. And number one of all the readers and followers of 007 Official Magazine was on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Number two was Goldfinger. And then number three was From Russia With Love. So the fans are already there. Then you start to look around what others do. So for example, yeah, Pixar, um, literally you know, putting some little nods to, to the movie. You've got, um, which you may be familiar with, the um, band Properly Heads. Releasing the Shaken and Stirred album <laughs> with a big, big reimagining of the James Bond theme uh, as a kickstart. But then you've got all the filmmakers. You've got Steven Stod Soderbergh, who's done you know, countless movies, including Ocean's Eleven, which I think in its own way is a bit of a Bond thing. And this is essentially uh, what he said, you know, shot to shot, this movie is beautiful in a way that none of the other Bond films are. You know, which I think is wonderful. And Christopher Nolan, who we mentioned recently in our review of Tenet, just yeah. says that he was inspired in terms of the visuals and the the kind of the uh, the composition by this film for Inception. And of course, again, getting incredibly geeky for a moment here, Pascal, in the scenes in that restaurant, uh, Belik HQ sat on top of the mountain. Of course, what Bond does is he discovers a plot by Blofeld to, um, he, there's a whole series of um, women in this, uh, in this place that have been hypnotized by Blofeld to go out into the world and to spread using some aerosols that they have, a, a, a virus, <laughs> coincidentally, uh, around the world. And, and I think that these ladies are called the angels of death in the script. And, if you actually look at the actresses within the Angels of Death, it's an absolute goldmine of geekdom. So Angela Schooler, who played Ruby Bartlett, who's one of the ladies that James Bond seduces, I actually think she might have been in the Avengers before Diana Rigg. Um, Katharina Von Schell was one of the Angels of Death, and she appeared later in the 1970s as Catherine Schell in a series called Space 1999. And also within the Angels of Death, you've got a very young Joanna Lumley, who That's of course right. went on to become Purdy in the new Avengers. So it's just an absolute geek's paradise, this film. It is, yes. Uh, I think in terms of the Bond uh, franchise and series, I'm going to go as far as saying that pretty much all the main actors from the Avengers have, have appeared. So is it Peter Backney that was on um, A View for a Kill? For yeah, memory? Patrick McNee, yeah. Yeah, Patrick McNee, uh, thank you. Um, with um, Roger Moore, for, if, I'm, if memory serves, you've said John Alumni, Diana Riggs, and of course, uh, Honor Blackman was also yeah. in a Bond movie. So, you know, whatever way. So, listen, I, I think for me, it's, it's, it's the lesson here, which is the idea of if you have a vision, it's likely to be ahead of the time. Ignore the critics. Forget the your peers, you know, generally the competitors. Get on because the audience will be with you, and that's been proven to be the case here. So we could talk a lot more, but um, we need to make sure that we don't, you know, kind of outstay our welcome in terms of this podcast. Can I just conclude by, I suppose, you know, in a, in, in a clumsy way, thank Diana Rigg for the memories. 
and the fact that we're going to be able to, to continue to watch uh, you know through you know different uh, platforms and thank you again roger for it being a, an amazing co-host this was two geeks and a marketing podcast i hope you've enjoyed today's episode please subscribe and leave comments in the usual places i was pascal fintoni and he was roger edwards until next time go out there and make sure your marketing is done right Thank you.